Chapter 1 of 2 Kings adds with what we might call the standard formula for the end of a king. Verse 17 of 2 Kings 1, So he died according to the word of the Lord, and Jehoram reigned in his stead in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Joshua, king of Judah. It's one of those classic standard formula for the end of one king you see throughout uh, the books of the kings. Then also in chapter 3, you see the beginning, again a standard formula for the beginning of the reign of a king. Now Jehoram the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel in Samaria the 18th year of Joshua king of Judah and reigned 12 years. Again, last time we thought about some of the, the dating issues on this, but today I want you to simply note that chapter 1 ends with a standard formula, and chapter 3 begins with a standard formula. And so chapter 2 sits between these two chapters, of course, but in such a way that it could be removed without the flow of the text being altered. Now that has encouraged some liberals to suggest this was an insert that the text has flown and they've, they've stuck this in at some other time. But what we should see in a more orthodox fashion is this text is very deliberate and very purposeful. And very simply is teaching that though Elijah goes, God's work continues. That though Elijah goes to heaven, the cause of God continues in the nation. And the chapter 2 is drawing together, again, the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Elisha. You see, that's the question here. What's going to happen next? That's the question that comes even from Elijah's own words. Verse 14, where is the Lord God of Elijah? What's going to happen when my father, my father, departs? What happens next? And that's why the end of the chapter and the events there are of great significance. And we'll finish there today with the Lord's help. They're not a new section. We shouldn't see the end of chapter 2 as a, as a section removed exclusively from the ministry of Elijah. But rather, at the end of chapter 2 and the works of Elisha, we are seeing the spirit of Elijah continuing. Of course, the spirit of God continuing now through Elisha and no longer through Elijah. Even beyond these simple comments, we should also note that there are geographical clues also involved here. There's a retracing of the steps of, of, of Elisha. He goes from Jericho to Bethel to Carmel to Samaria. We're meant to see this as a, as a continuity of theme and purpose. So I'm going to look at this passage today in light of that historical narrative, again, you can read commentaries and sermons, and there are a great number of many wonderful sermons on the parallel, see, with Christ's ascension or the rapture, silent or not, of believers. All manner of speculation from this chapter regarding Elijah's, Elijah, sorry, Elijah's translation. I want to see it in terms of though the Lord's servant departs, the Lord's work continues. Let's look at it in that term. First of all, please note, Elijah's translation is anticipated. 
Now, the pathway they follow in this section is about 35 miles or, or thereabouts. But what is interesting beyond the geographical detail is that everyone seems to know what's going to happen next. You, you see that. They all seem to know that Elijah's time on this earth is coming to an end. That's why I say this. His, his translation is here anticipated. Elijah knew, verse number 10, Thou hast a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee. Elijah knew what's going to happen. The sons of the prophets knew, both in Bethel and in Jericho, verse 3. Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? Verse 5. Knowest thou that thy Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? The servants knew about it. And the same verse indicates that Elisha also knew. Yea, I know it. There's an agreement here. They all know something's going to happen. We're not told how they know. More than likely, there was some word of prophecy. But we're not told exactly as to how they knew this. But we are given significant details regarding the farewell journey of Elijah as he awaits his translation. This farewell journey, again, has caused much speculation. What is the reason for it? Is it to say farewell? Is it to bring a word of encouragement? Hard to be certain, but I think it's not insignificant that Elijah's last actions are to the sons of the prophets. Spurgeon, in commenting on this, notes the importance of the schools of the prophets. It makes application to his, his own training institute for ministers in the Metropolitan Tabernacle and asks this generation, do you care for the generation to come? And one of the things I've certainly seen in my own ministry is that as ministers come to the end of their ministry, they have an increasing burden for the young students who come behind because of the recognition that I'm about to pass on, but the Word of God must not pass on. So that's certainly part of the details here. But note again, just in terms of Elijah here, please note the precept that Elijah followed Again, there's three references here. Verse number two, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. Verse number four, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And verse number six, the Lord has sent me to Jordan. It's such an obvious observation, but it should be made. Elijah is obeying the word of God right to the end. And it's a good time for me to remind you of that theme as we study this man over the last number of months. He's always walking in the Lord's will, even when we thought he might not be after Mount Carmel. Remember, we wondered then, what's he doing? He's running away from Jezebel. But even then we saw he's walking in the will of the Lord. You know, I think of the spirit of the psalmist, Psalm 119, I have sworn and I will perform it that I will keep thy righteous judgments. You know, again, I encourage those of you who are young do you understand that you've committed to serve Christ all of your days? That there is no retirement from the will of God? That, that, that no point in your life, in the future, can you say to yourself, I've had enough of this, I don't want to keep on following the Lord. 
It's a determination. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And I'm going to follow right to the end. You should know that now. Determine that in your heart. Because when you know that in your heart, you know what it'll make you do? Not try harder. It'll make you pray harder. If your heart has the determination to follow Christ fully, you will know how difficult that's going to be. And if you're not sure, ask some of the folks with some gray hairs around you. And I include myself in that. There are times that are really difficult. And the temptation is to play fast and loose with the Word of God, to rationalize your actions and not do the Lord's will. And perhaps some of you who are somewhat older find yourself, and you're at a point in your life, you've walked with God for many, many years, but there are new challenges, new difficulties, new struggles in the work of God. You think, I'm not sure I'm going to keep on walking with the Lord. Elijah here, the one taken to heaven, is an example to us of one who follows the Lord fully. Note secondly, though, the peace that Elijah enjoyed. I mentioned to you already verse number 10. When I am taken from thee, no sense of trouble or fear. He's aware of his impending departure, and yet no anxiety You see, such is the joy of the believer approaching the end of their time. You think of the Apostle Paul in the Spirit, I am now ready to be offered the time my departure is at hand. Again, he's he's looking for his reward. He's looking for being with Christ, which is far better, again, to use his words in Philippians chapter 1. He's mindful in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that when you're home in the body, you're absent from the Lord. And so in a believer, as they, as they walk with God all of their days, they have this anticipation and this longing to be with Christ. This is a motivation to serve the Lord. Turn across in your Bibles, please, to 2 Peter chapter 1. Again, I want to encourage you that if you would find peace in the days of your departure, if you would know the joy of the Lord to be your strength when your body is decaying, I encourage you to note the words of 2 Peter chapter 1. In the verse number 11, there is this wonderful encouragement to the people of God, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's hard to convey the sense of those words. It's hard to to put into human language what we're seeing. We're seeing something of the unseen in that text. But it has the idea of the believer triumphantly entering the presence of God at their death. Not with apologies, not with shame, but in glory and in triumph. It is a glorious entrance that awaits the child of God. And that's then used by the apostle, chapter 1, verse 10, wherefore the brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. You want to know joy and peace and death? 
Make sure you know joy and peace in Christ. Your calling and election, sure, is only when you have the confidence that Christ is indeed your Savior. Pursue that settled assurance. Again, be diligent in your Christian walk based upon, again, what Christ has done for you the gospel. You're diligent to make your calling and election sure in the confident knowledge of that triumphant entrance. For such who walk and live and die in Christ, there is great peace. John Knox said this, O serve the Lord in fear, and death shall not be terrible unto you. I know Elijah's not dying here, but he has no fear of his translation from this time unto the next. That is something, again, regarding the anticipation of his, of his translation. Secondly, please note, or sorry, I haven't missed this one there. The third thing is, so the priest that he followed, the peace he enjoyed, and then the privacy he sought. Before we move on, in this anticipation of his translation, note the privacy. Verse, again, 2, 4, and 6. On those three occasions, he tells Elisha, Tara here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me. And on all three occasions, Elisha objects and contests this. Again, we're not told why Elijah desired this privacy. We're not told explicitly why he desired this privacy. But one thing that makes sense of all the events is a sense of Elijah's modesty. Again, Spurgeon says this, Moreover, he was a man of humble spirit and did not desire others to see his glorious departure, lest they should think too much of him. But then, as the right caveat, Elisha, however, was appointed to be a witness of his translation. Now, Elijah is clearly not commanding Elisha in a matter of moral law. He's not suggesting something where Elisha would be breaking the law of God there's an agreement here. You're going to come, okay. So there's no issue of Elijah commanding something and Elisha sinning. That's not the point. But I think it has the sense that Elijah understood something of the unusual nature of his departure. Again, verse number 10. He does not say when he dies, but when he is taken from him. I think Elijah, hard to prove, but I think Elijah had some sense of his extraordinary departure and thus in humility desired privacy. Again, my application is simple. Such is the spirit of the true man of God. They're averse to the idolatry of men. Calvin's funeral, John Calvin's funeral was conducted with a simple pine coffin and no tombstone averse to all ambition and the praise of men. A few months later, students were said to go to, to find the last resting place of the reformer, and they could not find him among the fresh mounds. We all, whether in gospel ministry or not, we all must guard our hearts from the praise of men. It's a very, very dangerous thing to seek the favor of man. You may do it in your homes. You may live your life wanting to hear the well done of your children. And you seek their praise. And your 
if you like, your peace and your joy is found in their approval. You may do it in your workplace. You may want the approval and the well done of your employer. A spirit that desires man's praise is a spirit that is open to compromise. Because doing the will of God will at times not bring peace but a sword. And so, I get it, none of us are going to have the experience here of Elijah. But the heart of Elijah should be our heart. May God be glorified. May Christ increase and we, in, we decrease. That's something regarding the anticipation of Elijah's translation. And secondly then, please do note now, secondly, the execution of Elijah's translation. Again, the events are clear. The significance and the lessons less so. Again, all manner of speculation as to what this means and what this may be pointing towards. Let me try to highlight the things that are clear. First of all, the division that occurs. There's division here, verse 7 and 8. The division, of course, I'm referring to is the division of the Jordan. Elijah and Elisha stand together, and Elijah, verse 8, takes the mantle, wraps it together, and smites the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, and the two went over on dry ground. Again, significant theories here. Some have the idea of, a, of almost a prelude to entering the heavenly Canaan. In the Israel and Canaan situation back in the times of Joshua. But I think the point here is, is, is simpler than that. It is again encouraging the reader to see in Elijah the spirit of Moses. We've noticed this. Elijah is there. He's bringing the word of God. He's bringing the judgment of the people of God. There are so many parallels between Elijah and Moses. And we're going to see them together, aren't we, in the gospel narrative later on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the point of these men, and the overlapping of these men, is the connection of law and grace, the law and the prophets, and the continuity of God's work, Moses, Elijah, and the apostles, all together on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're meant to see continuity here. God's work is not divided into sections. It is one continual purpose of grace. The law of God comes on Sinai. Lawbreakers are judged. But the grace of God comes in Christ. And all comes because they anticipate his decease. That's the account of Luke on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're talking about the death of Christ. The continuity of law and gospel and the Messiah. We're meant to see links here. We're meant to join Biblical themes. And dear people, you're as much part of that continuity as Elijah was. You're part of that one single covenant of grace whereby God saves all mankind in Christ and in Christ alone. That's the division here. There's also in the separation, verse number 11, and here the separation I'm referring to is that between Elijah and Elisha, it occurs uh, by means of a chariot. Verse 11, And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. The Jordan's been parted, and now Elijah is taken from 
Elisha. And it's not Elisha's time. Nor is it the way that he will enter into heaven. This chariot is sent to divide Elisha and Elijah. And I think we could say the chariot accompanies Elijah, though to my mind he does not ride in it. Got different ideas. Some ideas of this and that. People see this chart is really the vehicle that's used to translate Elijah into heaven. The text doesn't say that. The text says he was taken in a whirlwind. The chariots come as God's heavenly companions for the journey. People rightly think, following Matthew Henry, sees the reference to the chariots here as being angelic. One of the terms for an angel is seraphim. And seraphim literally means burning ones. And the I-M ending is plural. And again, the beginning of the word speaks of burning. And so literally the burning ones. And of course, when it comes to the description of Sinai, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. And so very likely the chariots are referring to the angelic host. Could I even be pointing forward to Luke chapter 16 when the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom? The separation. Which then third leads to the translation, again the end of verse number 11, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. It's just known as his translation. That's the term that's used. A whirlwind or a strong wind. Again, one of the commentators, I wonder almost humorously, says it's a very fitting mode of translation for such a prophet. He was a strong breath of wind in this world, and God sends a wind to bring him into heaven. He is taken triumphantly and bodily into heaven without death. The man who asked to die will never die. His translation into glory. Elijah here does not die. But the language here affords comfort to all the saints. The Lord will bring you safely to himself. Do not fear death. There is a natural fear of death. We know that, Hebrews chapter 2. The ungodly are through fear of death all their lifetime subject to bondage. And if that is true of the ungodly, it can also be true of the child of God through remaining sin. The things that are true of the unbeliever can be true of the child of God when, when they struggle with their own spirit. So I, I recognize it is very possible for a true, a true child of God to approach death with fear. Be not afraid. Christ will not leave you. And the angelic host sent from the Savior will ensure that you are brought directly to Christ's presence. Do not be afraid, dear child of God. Thirdly then, please note Elijah's translation is confirmed. There are four ways in which I think this translation is, is confirmed. When I say confirmed, this sort of thing doesn't happen every day. And so it's understandable to wonder what just happened. And so Elisha is not in doubt. Verse 12, 
he saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariot of God and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. Elisha was an eyewitness of this event. And if we suggest that this event did not happen, we are calling Elisha a liar and we're taking a penknife through the word of God. Elisha bore witness to this happening. The words he used are themselves interesting and significant. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. The double use of a name like this again, denotes communion and affection in the original language. The repetition of a term, Samuel, Samuel, or my Lord, my Lord, that repetition involves communion and affection. It's a, it's a loss arising from respect and his love for his master. The chariot, again, is referring to a military term, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Elijah was not a man of war, but in God's hand, he is useful for the defense of the people. And we must remember this again. The clear proclamation of the word of God is more useful for a nation than multiple armies. The word of God is the defense of a nation. The word of God proclaimed is for the good of the nation. And if we put our trust in horses and chariots, they will always let us down. Every nation will live in the fear of someone else getting stronger chariots or more horses. And through human history, that's always happened. Look at our fancy, shiny chariots. Fifty years later, they're old, they're obsolete, they're out of date, they're useless. The Word of God stands forever. There is never, ever a possibility of something stronger than God's Word coming and overthrowing the church of Christ. He's showing the importance and the value of gospel ministry and faithful preaching. Dear young people, do not set your ambitions too low. You may, yes, in God's providence, be put in the military and do great service for your nation. That's an honorable thing. I'm not, I'm not slutty for one second. But ask the Lord, would he make me a preacher of the gospel? If that is not God's will, then don't do it. Don't run if you're not sent. But don't presume you're not being sent. Don't presume that's not God's over me. But have an open heart to the side. Lord, your will be done in my life. And see the glory of the preaching of the gospel and the word of God. The charts of God. You see this in his sense of loss. You see it also, the proof of this translation, in the receiving of the mantle. Again, verse 14, he took the mantle of Elijah. Elisha is not expecting Elijah's return. He understands it's now his time. Elijah's gone. And it's the mark of his office and his role is now being passed on to Elisha. Thirdly, you've got his instruction to the prophets. They, they want to go and find Elijah. Don't we see that? There are 50 servants there. Verse number 16, let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Lest the Spirit of God has moved him somewhere else. 
you understand, this doesn't happen very often. You, you can understand their concern here. Where's Elijah gone? So can we go and look for him? Elisha's instruction is no. He is in no doubt as to what has happened here. Which leads fourthly to the fact that when they persist and pester him, he says, send. They sent, and verse 17, they sought for three days but found him not. It's like the empty tomb. There's a similarity there. There is no body in the tomb. He is risen indeed. And the evidence is that Christ is indeed alive. And so in a similar fashion here, they're seeking evidence and they cannot find Elijah. He is gone. You know, these things are insignificant. They are, if you like, they are evidences of Elijah's departure. They also transfer the weight of authority. Now, the servants, the sons, the prophets, they're given a first taste. Elisha is now God's man. And his word is true. He is a wise prophet of God. So I've tried to summarize the, the history here as, as briefly and as thorough as we can, and yet yeah, gives an application along the way. But there are two, two really important final lessons to leave with you today. First is very simple. Heaven is a real place. The simplest application of this passage is to remind all of us today that heaven is a real place. Two questions. Where is Elijah today? And why is he there? Well, he's in heaven. Not by death, but by rapture. Just as some will die when the Lord returns. Or some will not die, sorry, when the Lord returns. As Christ was taken up to heaven in Acts chapter 1. Physically and bodily. There are three individuals. Enoch, Elijah, Jesus, physically, bodily, in heaven. Some would also add the name Moses to that. Different debate, different day. But there are three certainly who physically exist in heaven right now. Which means that heaven is a literal place that affords physical occupation. A place that is of a different realm, a place that pre-exists creation, for God was there from all eternity, and yet a place that allows physical occupation, not in a corruptible body, but in an incorruptible body. For it's a spiritual place, for spiritual bodies that are yet at the same time physical. Can I explain this? But I can state it. This passage makes it true, makes it clear that heaven is a real place. And heaven, as I saw this morning, is a place more permanent than this. This created order shall perish. It shall be renewed as new heavens and new earth. But this world is perishing. It will be rolled up like a scroll, but the heavens of God will never, ever perish. Therefore, dear child of God, live for what lasts. Live for glory and the presence of the Savior. 
and remind yourself that when a loved one dies in the Lord, they don't cease to exist. They go to be with Christ, which is far better, in the company of Elijah and Enoch. And the spirit of the just men made perfect. And as we sorrow for those who have gone before us, we must make sure that our sorrow is tempered by truth. We must make sure that truth governs our response to grief. And that those who are the children of God, they are far better off in the presence of Christ Jesus. So set your affections on things above, dear child of God. Heaven is real. Why is Elijah there? Well, Pink is, Pink's book, on, A.W. Pink's book on Elijah is really very, very wonderful. It's a tremendous helpful work. And he draws his work on Elijah to close by recapping the life of Elijah. A man who walked by faith and not by sight. A man who walked in manifest separation from the world around him. A heavenly-minded man. A man of elevated spirits. A mighty intercessor. A man of marked courage. All true. But none of them the reason why he's in heaven today. Elijah is in heaven today only because of the merits of Christ. John 14 verse 6. No man can come unto the Father but by me. And so it encourages you again to be gone with all kind of manner of previous notions regarding the salvation of the Old Testament saints. We find Elijah coming back again, if you like, upon the Mount Transfiguration. And as I said, their conversation is about the death of Christ. He's looking to the coming Messiah and his death. Because he understands Romans chapter 3, hundreds of years before Paul writes, that God is just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ, because Christ is a propitiation, not only for future sins, but for the sins committed before time. Elijah's sins are covered by Christ's blood. That's why he's in heaven. And if you think you can get to heaven some other way, Elijah would say to you, no, nay, never. Only through the blood. Only through Christ. It's the only way for the sinner to be in heaven one day. Heaven's a real place. And very briefly, the work of God continues. The work of God continues. Elisha asks Elijah, in connection with translation for a double portion of the Spirit, verse number 9. I passed over that until now. Elijah says, what can I do for you? Elijah says, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy Spirit be upon me. Now, some people have wrongly concluded the double portion is a matter of multiplication. That he wants twice Elijah's Spirit. But the double portion in Old Testament thought, is that that is given by way of inheritance. That the eldest son received a double portion. So in the inheritance, if a father had two sons, the eldest son received two-thirds, and the next son one-third, the double portion. 
And so Elisha's concern here is that the work of God will continue in Elijah's absence. As Elijah passes on the inheritance, it's a continuation of the work of God. And so though Elijah Elijah goes, the work of Elijah continues. And so verses 19 through 25 highlights the early work of Elisha And the things that are highlighted are deliberately given to us that we would see the spirit of Elijah continues in Elisha. The power of God continues. The wisdom of God continues. The grace of God continues. And the judgment of God continues. These themes continue. Elisha knows what to do. Elisha can bring miracles by the power of God. Elisha can heal barren waters. Elisha can bring judgment upon rude, impertinent, rebellious young people. All of these things can be done because God's work continues though God's servant leaves this scene of time. That principle is so, so encouraging. We find ourselves in the Free Church in North America, 45 years old plus. And there is a generation that has served for many, many decades in this area. And many of them are approaching retirement. And in God's time, they will eventually leave the scene of time. God's work will not suffer. His will will be done. The work continues. But young people, when the mantle falls, be ready to catch it and take the work of God forward. Do better than your forefathers and pray for the double portion of the Spirit of God. Praise God for His grace that saves a man like Elijah, that used him in His service. And then in answer to Christ's prayer, takes him to be with him, beholding his glory. Let's close in prayer, please. Almighty God and Father, we thank you again that your word directs our minds again to to Christ, to the glory of the gospel. We thank you, dear Father, for again the grace of God that saved a sinner like Elijah. You save him and keep him. Though a man of like passions as ourselves, yet mightily used of God. Oh, we pray, dear Father, that you would drive the word of God home to our souls. That we we would take things of this passage to to pray over. And perhaps for some who are are approaching death with, with trepidation and fear, comfort their souls, oh God, today. For others, dear Father, they're wondering about your will in their lives Give them a burden, O God, to serve you. Oh, Lord, we pray you bless us today. Bless the ministry in the nursing home. Again, may the word of God there. May it a free course and be glorified. Be pleased to encourage the saints and to save the lost. Help us, O God, in all of our ways. May we delight in this day. Hallow it and be blessed in it and through it. In Jesus' name, amen.